to the Blue Collar Zen Podcast, recorded here at the Detroit Zen Center. Good morning, and welcome back to the podcast. It is Christmas morning, December 25th, 2021. My name is Myungju, and I'm here on this quiet morning at the Detroit Zen Center with our abbot uh, and my teacher, Hwalsun Sunim. It's been a while, so it's very nice to be back with you. We've been uh, up at our uh, hermitage and retreat center in the Upper Peninsula, and came back to Detroit um, for the winter training season last week. So I came into Sunim's tea room, uh, and he said, Hey, Myungju, let's do a podcast. So here we are. This morning we'll be reading from a book uh, translated by David Hinton. And it's more than a book. It's actually a, a seminal work um, uh, entitled The Four Chinese Classics. And these four Chinese classics in- include the Tao Te Ching, the Chongzi, the Analects, and the Mincius. And uh, David Hinton has translated all of these classics into one uh, uh, collection, one, one book, a collection book. And today we'll be reading uh, from the Chongzi, uh, a very important Taoist classic Uh, written sometime around the 4th century BCE, and uh, also referred to as the Inner Chapters. So this book is a collection of of stories and essays and prose written by Chongzi, um, again, around the 4th century, and it really is one of the two uh, major works of of Taoism, which is a, a predecessor of Zen. So this story is called A Little Talk About Evening Things Out. And we hope you enjoy. Master Timid Magpie inquired of Master Noble Tree. I have heard from Confucius that a sage pays no attention to the concerns of this world, doesn't chase after profit, and doesn't avoid harm, doesn't search for happiness, and doesn't follow the way says something when saying nothing, says nothing when saying something, wanders in realms beyond the tawdry dust of this world. Confucius considers such talk vague and reckless. But I hear the mysterious workings of the way in his description. What do you think of it, Master? Even the emperor would be perplexed at hearing such things, began Master Nobletree. So how could Confucius understand? As for you, you're always jumping ahead to grand conclusions. Seeing an egg, you look for a rooster crowing. Seeing a crossbow, you look for an owl roasting over the fire. Listen carefully. I'll try out a few careless and doubtful words, and you listen, careless and doubtful. Okay? 
neighbor to sun and moon, through the passing days and nights. The sage embraces time and space, joins it all together in a single whole, letting confusion range free, all its subjects ennobling one another. People struggle and slave, but the sage, being stupid and thoughtless, bundles 10,000 years into a single purity, letting the 10,000 things be what they are, gathering themselves together in that pure whole. How do I know that adoring life is not mere delusion? How do I know that we who despise death are not exiled children who simply don't know their way home? Dear Grace was the beautiful daughter of a guard on the frontier border at Ai. When she was first captured by the Qin army, her dress was bathed in tears. But then she found herself in the king's palace, sharing his fine bed and savoring imperial food. And pretty soon she wondered why she'd ever cried. So how do I know that the dead don't wonder why they'd ever clung to life. You might dream that you're drinking fine wine, then the next morning you're weeping and sobbing. You might dream that you're weeping and sobbing, then the next morning you're out rollicking on a hunt. In the midst of a dream, we can't know it's a dream. In the midst of a dream, we might even interpret the dream. After we're awake, we know it was a dream. But only after great awakening can we understand that all of this is a great dream. Meanwhile, fools think they're wide awake. They steal around as if they understood things. Calling this a king and that a cowherd, it's incredible. Confucius is a dream, and you are a dream. And when I say you're both dreams, I too am a dream. People might call such talk a sad and cryptic ruse. But 10,000 generations from now, we'll meet a great sage who understands these things. And when that happens, it will seem like tomorrow. Well, Sundam, thank you for that story about Master Noble Tree. And who is the other master? Magpie. Master Magpie talking to Master Noble Tree. I really like the how David Hinton in his translations he he translates the meaning of the names of these masters whether it's the the Zen or the Taoist tradition um, that's something very beautiful about that like for example you know you've had us read Huangpo and uh, I never realized that his name meant bitter root mountain and so yes. it, it really gives uh, a playfulness and a beauty to studying the, the works of these uh, 
these men because you realize it's a very folkish kind of thing when someone is going around with a name like Master Magpie or um, Bitterroot Mountain. It's very beautiful and, and somehow more human, humanizing than referring to them by um, by some exotic name that we don't have a connection to. So uh, that, that that helps and. Um, yeah, I wonder what, what comes up for you when you're reading reading this story about Master Magpie and Master Noble, Noble Tree. Well, a number of things, but I guess the first thing how difficult it is for human beings to just let things be. And it's even, you know, I use the term frequently, non-interference. And I think it can be easily misunderstood that you would never, you know, interfere in a, in a, in a, in a circumstance that was called for. That it's kind of like, we don't want to interfere with our thoughts and feelings and memories when they come up. They will come up continuously but we don't want to interfere with them. However, there are circumstances where something happens and you, you respond to it. Then it's no longer interference. Interference is when you're in a situation you don't belong in. And that's the case, I think, for most human beings. They tend to interfere with each other's lives. So letting things just unfold, as Master Timid Magpie uh, was discussing, uh, is almost an impossible thing for, uh, I think, especially us as Westerners, to imagine how that would be all right. Mm. But I would suggests that it starts with allowing your memories, thoughts, and feelings uh, to just come and, and do their thing and go, and that's what happens. But typically we think that those thoughts and memories and feelings are ours. And, and not only is that not true, but as long as it is true for us, the suffering is going to go on. Because the suffering ultimately is by our own hand. And it starts with interference. Would you say that interference is, uh, in what you're speaking about as interference, is the same as what Master Nobletree is describing to Master Timid Magpie when he is saying, you know, when you see... Um, when you see an egg, you immediately think of the chicken. So in other words, you're, you're, you see the egg, and you're not really seeing the egg. You're very quickly jumping from the egg to, uh, which is in front of you, to something that isn't actually there, but is a memory picture or a conceptual idea of the egg, which is a chicken. Yes, um, I think you're trying to make sense out of seeing the egg. 
it kind of okay. The so, egg just can't stand on its own. Right, and I think that it's to me there seems to be a parallel in that sort of habitual conceptual conceptualizing moving forward. There seems to be a parallel there to interference. Well, it, I think it's the same, and it's a tendency that when we see the world, yeah. Whatever it happens to be, it can be a flower or a tree. Right. It's just not enough. We have to explain it. We have to do something with it. We have to interfere with it. Yeah, and I mean, ultimately, you know, people pick them, and and put them, you know, all over the place. And again, you'd have to say there's some appropriate measure of that. Yeah. But we're not going to get out of doing that completely. No, no, it's not that, that we don't recognize things, but once it, the recognition is happening spontaneously, it's the aftermath of, of the experience of what's coming in, we have to allow it to come in and vanish within us. That's the nature of everything that we perceive with our, our five senses. So what I hear you saying is that you know, really what you're presenting here is quite quite profound, and at the same time I think it could be simplified. Um, basically what you're saying is that the human tendency, whether it's with another person or something as simple as looking at an egg, our tendency is to immediately jump from our direct perception to conceptualizing. Some and, kind of understanding. And that leads to what you're referring to here as interference. Right. So we, we just can't leave things alone. We're sort of driven from the inside by a desire to to not accept things as they are, whether it's a person or, or you know something we're seeing. We have to always be, I see this in myself, um, we're always turning things into something more than they are. And I wonder if that is that what you're saying? Well, I think that we're trying to turn it into something more than it is, but the truth is that it's it's beautiful as it is. Like, there's nothing to add to it. Right. There's nothing to understand about it. Right. Only to allow it to enter you and disappear in you, and, and, and it, it's that's it. Yeah. Right? We can't, we don't need to stand and, and look at a flower for long uh, when we're not... When we're simply perceiving it, then it disappears within us and we become one with the flower. So and the flower becomes one with us. What I hear you pointing to here is an opportunity to, as this old master here, Master Noble Tree, is saying, it's, it's quite a, a radical um, teaching, but a very simple teaching. And it's like an invitation to live life uh, free of of conceptualizing and just encountering things or people as they are and uh, attempting to kind of settle in to our immediate experience. Well, we're, we're keeping the distance between us when we attempt to conceptualize or explain it. Hmm. And so we always see it as something other than ourselves. Sunam, is it worth talking about, or is it better left 
sort of unexamined to to look at and and talk about what gives rise to this this division or this 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 inherently divisive mind in the first place the mind that sees itself as separate from everything so quickly you know without this idea that that we you've brought up recently um, you know a, a, a phrase sort of I think coined by Sam Harris this this idea of thinking without knowing that you're thinking which mm-hmm. we're doing all the time right what gives rise to this human condition well the idea that we have a self that that I'm the self in the head behind the eyes seeing things hearing things smelling things touching things and so forth so so it's that, a view of it's our a false self. sense of the of reality so the, the, the thing we're talking about is letting that go. Just be with whatever comes, and you don't have to follow anything that leaves. Because it disappears, it comes, it has a lifespan, it disappears in its own time. Just like us, just like everything. All of the ten, so-called 10,000 things, which represent all of the things of the world. Could you talk a little bit about how uh, someone can can arrive at that insight, but also once you have the insight, you know, someone may understand what you're saying. So oh, it would be really nice to let go of my um, my sort of addiction to uh, to interference um, and conceptualizing and always, you know, thinking about things and analyzing things, people and so on. It'd be nice to just let that go and relax. Um, but it seems to me a lot of people have the desire to do that, but, but are unable to, uh, meditation practices often, you know, people often talk about how difficult it is, um, to let that go. And I wonder if you could describe your own process there or noble trees process, potentially? Well, um, I think it's true that um, a healthy person has purpose in their life. They're not doing things for just no particular good reason. Mm. So when I get up in the morning, and are going to the bathroom, my purpose is to empty myself, wash my face, and brush my teeth. So I put all my energy into that. And it, it, it lasts, what, five, eight minutes, whatever it is. And then I go to the next thing to do. Now, a lot of this is routine, mm-hmm. just like the rest of the universe. We've seen the same tree in front of the Zen Center for 30 years. It's growing and changing but it's the same tree mm-hmm. it's routine you walk out there that you're going to see the tree mm-hmm. right so this is the natural way of things i think what happens when people take up something new like meditation they wouldn't think of it in terms of having a purpose other than maybe they're doing it to get something mm-hmm. That's not a purpose. The purpose for doing it is it's worth doing. Yeah. We could make a whole thing out of brushing your teeth that is better for lack of... But it, it's just worth doing. 
That's all, that's all we have to know. Washing my face is just worth doing. So if you sit in meditation and you have, you're trying to figure things out, of course it's difficult. Yeah. But what you're experiencing is what's going on for you mm-hmm. all of the time. But you're magnifying it when you take up the practice of meditation. Yeah. But each time that you uh, think without knowing you're thinking, you come back to the way that you're practicing. And I'm calling that a purpose. This say, Let's say you're counting your breath. Mm-hmm. That's where this, uh, uh, the, the, this exercise is always pointing us. This is what we're attempting to do here. Mm-hmm. And we're repeating it over and over again. We're following it. Yeah. And at the time we're doing that, all the memories, all the thoughts, and all the feelings are occurring. Yeah. But if you know what your purpose is, you don't follow them. You can't help but be aware of them. But the difficulty we have as human beings following them. Right. I once was working with a... I mean, we were in the same community with our teacher, and he was mentally ill. And uh, one day we were working, it was summertime, and... and, uh, all of a sudden, the jingle of the ice cream truck came, and he just dropped what he was doing and ran after the ice cream truck and then came back with an, with an ice cream. And we're all kind of looking at him like, oh, my God, what has he done? And he, 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 what he was doing was not, he hadn't honed himself yet to stick with what it was he was doing regardless of what was happening in terms of his thoughts and and and, and etc mm-hmm. and that's an untrained person this happened to be a mentally ill person so but i saw him over time get somewhat better at doing it mm-hmm. uh, but a normal uh, you know person having i would say reasonable intelligence not having any you know, uh, organic disorder in their brain wouldn't find this difficult to do if they thought getting lost in my thought and recognizing it and coming back to my breath is already doing it properly. But I think as Westerners, we want to just be able to stay with our breath. But almost no one can do that when they first begin. And even if the if they if a trained meditator isn't going to be able to just stay with their breath without ever falling into thinking, without thinking, the difference would be that they would shorten the time that they're thinking without knowing they're thinking. Yeah. And that's because they've honed their purpose. They know what they're doing there, and they keep coming back to that. Yeah, I wonder if you'll let me try um, a bit clumsily here to tie this back to the story that we just read. So it seems like this... Um, is that all right? Yes. So this story um, with... Uh, Master Noble Tree 
seems to be divided. There seem to be sort of two sections, and in the first section, he's pointing out how uh, Master Timid Magpie sees an egg and immediately thinks of a chicken, and then sees a crossbow and immediately thinks of an owl being roasted for dinner, or something to that effect. And so that seems to me to be the same as thinking without knowing that you're thinking. Mm-hmm. So the the first thought appears, or the first the perception is there, the egg or the owl, but the mind jumps immediately into a conceptual, a conceptualization without even being aware, and loses sight immediately. Then loses sight of the reality of the egg or the owl. In other words, literally, you create a dream. I got it right, and that thank you, and that leads to the kind of second part of the book, or the second section seems to be discussing this idea of the dreamlike condition of of our lives and how it's like things are always moving you know i mm-hmm. i there was something that caught me there where uh he said you know how do i know that when the dead are dead they're not relieved um in the same way that you know we're so fearful of death how do i how do we know that once we're dead it won't be just a huge relief in the same way that when we wake up from a nightmare uh, there is some relief in being awake. Um, and so those two, thinking without knowing that you're thinking, and then the dreamlike condition of our lives uh, seem to be quite, you know, related and, and quite quite a close subject. Um, and I'm, what you have just been discussing is meditation practice, which isn't brought up here in the story, uh, but seems to... Um, you know, after Taoism, with the, with the birth of Zen and, and Zen Buddhist practice, uh, this practice of formalizing, you know, sitting and, and following the breath and, and, and seeing uh, that we're thinking without knowing that we're thinking and kind of, in a sense, sort of institutionalizing a practice that would help us see very clearly what it is Master Noble Tree is describing to his student. Um, seems to be what you've kind of tied things back to. And I guess I wonder if you have any thoughts on why it is that that a routine sitting practice, or uh, we could say here kind of an institutionalized practice of meditation, why is that essential? Because, you know, we could just read books like this and do our best with with it, you know. I think that there is an element of understanding the conceptual frame that we're uh, now going to to examine uh, our lives in is important, and then it can be set aside, and we we return to practice now in a very practical way. I don't think there's any other position a human can take where in fact their thoughts and and memories and feelings are moving at their slowest slowest rate and here you're talking about the the posture of sitting and meditation yes. okay so it's a physiological everyone aid. notices when they get up to walk mm-hmm. at first it can be a little harder to go from the process of sitting 
into walking and not lose track of what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And then some people don't regain it while walking, and some people do. But the point is, when the body moves, the mind moves. So at the outset, we're looking for the simplest situation where people can view their mind as slow as it's ever going to be, in spite of the fact that people continue to report, my mind is going crazy. When they're meditating. Right. Yeah. And this is simply an example of what your mind is doing almost all of the time. So it sounds like in, as a Zen teacher, you're prescribing sitting meditation as a physiological and uh, a very practical aid in being able to see clearly what it is that Master Noble Tree is presenting here and other teachers. This, this insight that we're spending most of our lives thinking without knowing that we're thinking. Correct. And in a sense, living in, uh, you know, the only thing that we can verify is that everything changes, including our lives come and go, just as everything else does. And so this dreamlike situation this, this sort of temporary situation that we're attempting to wake up from, uh, we're taking this conceptual framework that is being presented here in the story and, and many, many other stories and, and putting it into a context that we can see for ourselves. And we're calling that sitting meditation as a kind of launching pad for that. Is that what I'm hearing you say? Well, that's exactly what happened when Taoism met uh, Diana. Uh, when Buddhism uh, uh, arrived in China. I don't know if most people would know and, what dhyana means. I wonder if you could open that up. Dhyana essentially is empty mind meditation. So that's the process of emptying the mind. And for many practitioners of Zen, even now, that's where they stop. But in our tradition, that's in a sense, the starting point. So you're saying when Taoism met Dhyana, also called emptying the mind meditation, that right. was sort of the predecessor or the, the, the catalyst of, of what we're now calling Zen practice. Taoism and Dhyana met and joined one another, and out of that came Zen. And Dhyana was the type of meditation promoted by primarily the Hindus, or was that a, a Buddhist well, I, I mean, I don't know what Buddha himself called himself, yeah. uh, but certainly it's part of, you know, Buddha himself came out of the Hindu tradition. Yeah. And so I don't know that it makes any difference to separate all of that. And But what his teaching was eventually compiled and called Buddhism. Mm -hmm. and, and the Eightfold Path, in a sense, the eighth step of the of the eightfold path is dhyana. And and so the the in a sense the the uh, mirror is clear. In other words, your when empty mind doesn't mean that there's nothing there. It simply means that there's nothing that you're grabbing onto. So a mirror meditation. Yeah. So it's like, though, just being the mirror is mm -hmm. not enough because things are going to appear in front of the mirror and 
we, we have to learn how to embrace what appears and not chase after what leaves. So, Diana, I'm not quite sure I, I followed you, but I'm, I'm not surprised. It's a, um, something that you clearly you know, have, have grasped through your own experience. So, but conceptually, maybe you could help, help, help me un, unpack this a little bit. So what, what I heard you say there is that Taoism, and we just read from a Taoist classic, um, we have people listening that may be being introduced to a lot of these terms and um, concepts for the first time. So Taoism was a tradition that, that preceded Buddhism. It, it, it began roughly, at least with, the, with Lao, Lao Tzu, and uh, around the 6th century BCE. Okay. And the, the, the century when, da, when Taoism met um, Diana was uh, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of the 3rd century CE. So we're talking, you know, somewhere 800 to 1,000 years that Taoism had, was the fabric now of Chinese society. Mm-hmm. So when, when they saw Buddhism come, they were looking at Buddhism to see if there's anything that can uh, help their Taoist practice. And they picked Diana. Diana being the, 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 the seated, empty mind meditation. Right. Or mirror, mirroring style of meditation. So you're saying here that Diana, Taoism met Diana, Diana met Taoism, and, and, and Zen was born. Out of that. Out of that and, meeting. And actually, the, at that point, there was a... Um, no, Tao, we, don't, we can't actually... I mean, Lao Tzu said that he named it Tao because he didn't know what to call it. And so by the time we got to the you know early part of the um, CE, um, the practice was called Dark Enigma Learning. Again, a name for something that doesn't exist. That's a very mysterious name. I wonder if you could... What would you what what would you call it if you were speaking to someone and they said what does dark enigma learning mean? It's something that has no way of being explained. It has to be experienced. Yes. So a, a type of direct experience learning. Yeah. Rather than a conceptual learning. Or, exactly. Okay, so yeah. experiential learning. So the only thing you know from uh, from my understanding, of course, is that it wasn't that. You know the Taoists weren't practicing meditation; they weren't practicing it together because it hadn't yet been institutionalized. And they discarded the the Taoist uh, discarded most of Buddhism, only extracting out Dhyana, not art, not interfering with the institutional Buddhism, which still goes on in China, and we know that it goes on in Korea. But then there's a group of people called Zen practitioners. And that's where you and I and the people that we've associated with over the years have have come out of. Yeah. So understanding that history was important, but the important thing is that you 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 have to recognize that we have to be you can't just sit empty minded in meditation. You have to enter into the world. And that, that's usually where the where the trouble begins. Yeah. 
So the the the, uh, the classic teachings, uh, the no gate gateway, for example, is about life situations that need to be understood through our insight. And those were formalized into, uh, they were called Kung An in China, and then they became what is more commonly known in in our country as koans, and in Korea it's called the Hwadu. They're not exactly the same Hwadu and koan, yeah. but they're, the, the purpose is similar. Mm. And, and uh, yeah. But I think that, to me, the, the thing that, you know, this has always struck me for years, and we fir- I first heard it uh, back with uh, my first teacher, and then I heard it from uh, a later, a much later teacher and a, a more senior master, that this idea that um, a dreamlike appearance that we have sleeping, that everyone understands what we're talking about uh, when we talk about dreaming. Everyone's had dreams, whether you call them good dreams or bad dreams. Everyone dreams. Right. And then they wake up and immediately know that that was a dream, and now they go on with their lives. And in a larger picture, life is also a dream that we have to wake up from. And it's a dream that thinks that we've got to fulfill all kinds of desires and ambitions as if there is something uh, concrete about this life. Of course, it's there's a certain sense it's concrete, right. but it depends on how you go about it. I have talked about this over and over again. There's nothing we can't do in life, but we have to do it from a different perspective. Yeah. And that's perspective is called absence yeah right and 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 absence in this sense means that without self without self interest spontaneous natural but again it it it's like uh, we don't have to do anything but everything will get done <laughs> We're in the business of trying to do everything. And of course, it doesn't work. Everyone looks around and goes, this world doesn't work. No, of course it doesn't. Because that's not, the, that's not, it's not free action. It's not selfless action. Yeah. It's like if you help the poor, which of course would be a wonderful thing, but if you do it because it makes you feel better, mm-hmm. it's impure. It's wasting your time. Yes, they're getting fed, but it's not a pure practice. A pure practice is that you do the things you're able to do spontaneously. You don't pick something, oh, it'll be really great if I do this altruistic thing. Right. Things happen all the time on a daily basis. You don't have to make up some dramatic way. It might be just helping yeah. an old person carry their packages that you see on, on the sidewalk. Uh, but again, as long as we harbor this idea that there's an individual entity mm-hmm. that is riding around in this body, right. we're going to have problems and suffer. Yeah, It's always done by our own hand. Well, it reminds me of when you're talking about the dreamlike 
state or the dreamlike condition that we're in, which and comparing that to the, the same way that we dream at night, you know, I know in my own dreams there's this sort of fleeting thing that's always happening where I'm, you know, if, I'm, if someone is chasing you, you never quite see who it is that's chasing you. Or, you know, you may dream of a beautiful man, uh, in my case, you know, sort of a, uh, some uh, wonderful experience is, is going to happen, but you, you kind of never quite get to it, you know. And, so and there if you is, do, it's faceless. That's right. And um, I was sharing with you that I, I had had a dream of, um, of being shot uh, uh, a couple of years ago, and I had the experience of, you know, there was sort of a war happening, and I was shot, and I was laying on the ground drowning in my own blood, sort of choking. And at the very moment that I was about to die, I realized I was dreaming, and I just woke up, and I was in my bed. And it was such a relief. But I had gone through the, that, that moment of death, and then suddenly I woke up and, and I, you know, reappeared in my bed. And so that really was a powerful experience. And I think that what what I've heard you say and, and other masters share is that our, our very lives are like this. And that we are sort of being propelled by some unseen force, either, either outside or inside most of the time. And that we're very rarely taking a look at what's actually happening. You know, we're thinking without knowing that we're thinking. We're dreaming without knowing that we're dreaming. We're not yeah. actually living. We're not awake. Yeah. Um, and um, meditation or Zen meditation practice as a way of waking up from this unconsciousness, this lack of, of, of deep awareness, um, how does one do that? I think it's clearer to say that most human beings are either thinking about the past or the future. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to the future, looking for a situation that they'll be happy in and at peace. Mm. And you could say that's available every moment in the present. So that people looking to the future are trying to find a moment in the present when they can be perfectly at ease while being in the present. But that moment never comes. Well, because they're dreaming of the of the of the future present. Is it fair to say while that, they're in the present? So is it fair to say that the the act of dreaming about the future is what what robs us of our ability to have that peace? Well, it's one of the things. Yeah. Obviously, if you do anything that isn't about what's right in front of you, yeah. you're, you're where are you? You're deluded. Well, where are you? You're either thinking about things or uh, in the past or thinking about things in the future. You're just right. not in your body-mind in that moment because when you are, I think that it's, it's a wonderful thing. And everyone has experienced that. Yeah. It's often with hobbies and so forth. Uh, and and so then they gravitate back to those hobbies because they don't realize it's available every moment. That's interesting. Yeah. And I don't think that you're prescribing here that we never have to think about the future. I mean, you and I in our lives as 
Zen monks in a city, you know, running a city center together and teaching people often have to have discussions about, you know, how to pay the bills or how to work. But that's with a done in the present. Student. That the, the right. people can understand there are things right. to do in the present. But I think what you're saying here is that that's different than doing spiritual practice. That's different than than the practice of trying to wake up from this this thick dreamlike way that we're typically operating. Well, I don't want to get it confused with what we're talking about. If you're working on, say, your financial budget, right. I don't think you're dreaming. Uh, differently than if you were uh, dreaming or sitting in meditation. Mm -hmm. Right? So in that sense, it is a dream. But in both situations, in meditation and eventually while doing your finances, it, 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 you're, you're building an environment where awakening is possible. So you're able to think about the future while knowing that you're thinking about the future. Sure. I got it. So that, that awareness is there. So Yeah, we're not going to eliminate planning. I got it. But we're going to eliminate the continual thought about the future. The sort of that... that, that we uh, don't even get down to just planning it right. and laying it out. Right. We actually just continue to dream about it's it. Like and every day it's wheels. a different dream. It's like spinning our wheels. Yeah. Yeah, I see what you're saying. And it, it, our life is so bad for us in the present that... That seems like a relief for a while mm. to be thinking about something else. Right. So naturally, when you sit in a situation and you're brought back to this is all there is, you're, you, if you dream here, it's just going to make this experience very hard. This experience is designed for you to begin to participate in. But I think you've really opened, you've really touched on something here, which is something I... I hear from people a lot and can also identify with, which is that when, when we take up this practice of meditation, you, know, you take your seat on your mat, oftentimes people find that being in that present moment is really not interesting. You know, it really is, they really don't like being with themselves without dreaming about the future or the past. There's right. a would you say that there's an initial kind of reckoning, almost a detox that has to take place when you first take up meditation practice, where um, you're kind of have to, you're sort of going to have to just get over the idea that it's going to be pleasurable because you've got some catching up to do in that regard. I'm not exactly sure you know, what you're asking. Well, what I'm asking is I think people come to meditate because they're looking for relief. But I think it's one of the last things that they don't find relief when they when they first take up the practice. There is very little relief happening. Well, I think what you have to be careful of here is that there are some benefits that we could classify under relief to doing meditation. Yeah. Your heart, heart rate reduces probably your blood pressure. But, but this is, you know, and, and I would say this is what uh, most people are attempting to do when they take up a meditation practice because we have meditation going on in schools and yoga centers all over the place where it's about feeling better about life. And in Zen, we would say, well, that eventually is a, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a side benefit yeah. of it. But the primary reason that Zen students are taking up the practice of 
of of Zen is to free themselves. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you... So it's very clear, again, going back to what I talked about earlier, it's never... If you want to make brushing your teeth boring, you can do that by thinking it's boring. Mm -hmm. But what happens if you just brush your teeth thoroughly? It literally becomes your part of your practice. Yeah. And I, I again, I would say, and that starts in a meditation hall where you've got the comfort of other people there to support you, a teacher close at hand that, you, that can help you uh, in, in terms of guiding you and, and how to go about it. But you gotta buckle your uh, boots and, and, and do it. Yeah, actually, so it's coming back to that dark enigma learning of experience-based experience learning rather than, than stopping at the conceptual level. And I think it's a lot like learning an activity that you've never done before. Yeah. You are not going to be great at it in the beginning, but there will never be another first time. Right. Which means that the next time you do it, it will be different. And presumably, if you're being taught correctly, it will get better. Yeah. But there, we, we can't say that if you meditate on Sunday, and then for the first time, and then you come on uh, Monday morning, that you're going to sense that that you're get that you're getting better, and again, that's where I think a teacher become can become indispensable in yeah. that we can't evaluate our own situation. What's the old saying that uh, a doctor that you know guides himself? has a fool for for a client. Right. So we only know that that if we look at our lives, anything we've gotten reasonably even reasonably passable at, it was a process we had to go through the days when we could not even, you know, say take dancing where we're totally awkward, we're trying to, you know, do the steps and right. look at our feet right. and so forth and if we really want to learn how to dance, we keep doing it. And even if it's, you know, it's just a, the smallest increment that's not measurable by us. If yeah. there's somebody watching that can help you point out when you fall back into the yeah. same old thing, but, oh, that was good, you did that step. So it sounds like you're speaking here of a spiritual teacher as a, as a very good friend. And guide and only. Guide. Yeah, they cannot do it for you. Yeah. Well, this this story in, inherent in this story of of um, the two masters, you know, what you smell in there immediately is that these were probably people living together, you know, which seems to be um, a pretty common theme within Taoist and Buddhist and Zen communities that people are sharing lives together around this path and. So there is a, a beautiful sort of friends that share the same outlook on right. things, right. and there are going to be stories uh, in in the these Taoist classics where two or more people uh, uh, 
become friends and have discussions and yeah. and have a life and and go through the tragedies and eventually the death and they support one another so ideally in a Zen center of course you'd like to have people that recognize what it is uh, they're trying to do and that we're all uh, more or less on the same page yeah. and trusting this process uh, that is going to reveal itself to us if we do it with integrity and and straightforwardness. Yeah. Well, Sinem, I really appreciate the time to do this podcast with you again. It's getting close to an hour, uh, so I feel like we should probably wrap up the wrap up this chapter. And um, you know, I want to just say one thing at yeah, the end, please. which I just it dawned on me this morning when I was reading it is that you know when I was a kid yeah um, and I'm sure many kids did the same thing we learned a little uh, uh, a song called you know row your boat okay and go it, you know how it goes row 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 your boat gently, gently down, down the stream, stream. Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. <laughs> no, it's interesting how these things develop, though. Yeah. I mean, in terms of the story we're just yeah. and what we're just talking about, right. there it is in plain sight. But I never, never even considered that. It was just something we did. I never. Right. Oh, life is a dream. Could we sing that together, Sunam, as the closing to our podcast here? <laughs> I think it's better if you sing it. Oh, no, let's please do it together. Okay. Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. Row, row, row your boat gently down the stream. Merrily, 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 life is but a dream. <laughs> Thank you.